Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast in partnership with McGraw-Hill Medical. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, Dr. Joyce Sow, and myself, Blake Smith. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome back to Run the List. My name is Walker, and I'm here today with our guest, Dr. Daniel Solomon. He is a clinician educator in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. In addition to pursuing his academic interest at the intersection of injection drug use and infectious diseases, he serves as a teacher and mentor across the spectrum of medical education. And I've had the real privilege to work with him in the past, so I'm just thrilled to have him on today. To that end, he also directs the clinical learning in the health sciences and technology track at Harvard Medical School. Today, we're going to focus on the workup for fever, which is often included in the core competencies that internal medicine clerkship students receive. Rather than focusing on the specific aspects of all the potential diagnostic tests that can be sent, we're really going to emphasize the way in which we think about fever. We will apply a framework that Dr. Solomon uses for clinical reasoning and in infectious diseases to a case of fever of unclear etiology. And in doing so, I hope that we can illustrate how um, some of the language of diagnostic reasoning we've used before can help us organize how we think about an undifferentiated problem. So, Dr. Solomon, um, let's go ahead and get started. Are you ready to run the list? Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Walker. Sure thing. Mr. F is a 42-year-old landscaper with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, seasonal allergies, and opioid use disorder that is in remission, presenting with intermittent fevers and occasional night sweats over the last week. While he used to take metformin and amlodipine, he is actually not currently taking any medication since he recently moved to the area and is currently between primary care doctors. He initially went to urgent care a few days ago. There, he was afibrile on their exam, and they thought he made us have a viral process, so there was no further workup done at that time, and they just suggested supportive care. Over the last few days, he has become more fatigued, and his partner encouraged him to present to the ED, where his temperature was 102.1 Fahrenheit, blood pressure 145 over 82, pulse 76, sats on room air 98%, and his physical exam was unremarkable. He is now being admitted for further expedited workup. Dr. Solomon, before we jump into the specifics of this case, can you just remind us about the broader non-infectious differential of fever that we should keep in mind when seeing a patient with a new fever? Of course, yeah. And I think it's a really important lens to take. You know, as an infectious disease doctor, we focus so much on the infections that can cause fever. But I always like to take a step back and remember that there are a bunch of non-infectious things that can cause fever as well. So I'm sure we'll come back to the infection bucket but also important to think about non-infectious inflammatory things like rheumatologic disease, a new onset of lupus, sarcoidosis, vasculitis, things like that. So that's one bucket. The second big bucket is malignancy. And for malignancies, you know, I, I think mostly about hematologic malignancies causing fever, so leukemia and lymphoma. In solid malignancy, typically we see fever when there are mets to the liver, but solid malignancy that hasn't metastasized actually is an uncommon cause of fever. So infection, non-infectious, inflammatory, and malignant, those are the three big buckets. And then I always like to just make sure I've checked all the boxes. So things like new medications can cause drug fevers. Um, if people have been traveling, I think about DVT or any, any you know, VTE causing usually low-grade fevers. Um, so those are the sort of the big buckets that I think about. And uh, then I really focus on the infections because that's my world. 
Absolutely. So can you just explain and help sort of reassure us that there is a general framework you use for a fever of likely infectious etiology? Yeah, of course, of course. And so I agree with you. I'm not into like, my memory's not the best. I'm not into like creating a list of 20 or 30 things that could be going on. I think it's really useful to have just a nice approach to any patient that you can sort of apply and walk through any case. So here's what I do. As an infectious disease doctor, I really like to have stories make sense. I want to know what is happening, but also why is it happening and why is it happening now? So that's the big sort of overarching thing. What's happening? Why is it happening? And why now? And my approach to answering those questions, I use four questions. So number one, who is the host? Number two, what are the notable exposures that this host might have had? Number three, what is the syndrome? And that's going to be what symptoms do they have? What's the chronicity? What other lab tests are associated with the syndrome? And then that last question that I always come back to is what doesn't fit? And so we can talk about each of those questions maybe in more detail, but those are the overarching questions that really guide my thinking. That's amazing. That's such a helpful way to take what can be an overwhelming um, differential diagnosis and basically uh, step through it in a way that allows us to narrow. And so I love that you start with considering who the host is, because that really does determine just how widely we need to think and um, what diagnosis we need to consider. So to that end, let's just uh, start there and have you tell us what specific aspects of a patient's case help you define who they are as a host. Yeah, sure. These are sort of the background demographic and medical factors that make up who the person is. So number one, how old are they? Number two, and this is a really important one, what is their baseline immune status? So is this someone who's like a normal 22-year-old with a normal immune system, no past medical history? Or is this someone who's a little bit older? Maybe they have a history of cancer or a rheumatologic disease and they're on a medication that lowers the immune system that really sort of changes the way I think about what infections they're at risk for. I also think about anatomic risk factors. So for example, anyone who has prosthetic joints, those are opportunities or uh, areas that are vulnerable to infection. And then the other piece of this is like, is this someone who's had infections in the past? And what do those infections look like? A history of infections can really be helpful in understanding what infections look like now. So those are the big factors that I think about for the host age, immune status being the big one, and any you know anatomic abnormalities that could put them at higher risk for infections. Excellent. So we're already narrowing, and I love the emphasis on the immune status. As we all know, that's really um, the the biggest uh, starting point. And so for our patient, we have already actually asked a few initial questions, and we've just briefly reviewed what we can gather from his chart. And we can start to describe our patient as a relatively young, highly functional uh, gentleman without any history of significant infections. While he is not on immunosuppressive medication and he does not have a disease that leaves him truly immunodeficient, so far as we know, his diabetes could leave his immune system relatively compromised, so we're keeping that in mind. Let's go to the second part of the framework, which is notable exposures. Um, what specific questions you know, should we ask when we're trying to take a history that's as thorough as an infectious disease consultant's? Yeah, I think this is where we get into the meat of, you know, the mythical infectious disease history, right? We ask about everything, but this is where we really dive into the meat of what people could have been exposed to. So here are some of the things that I always think about. Number one, what time of year is it? 
you know, if we're in January, we're thinking about viral respiratory illness like flu or now COVID. Whereas if it's in the summer, we're thinking more about tick-borne disease or viruses that get passed around in the summer. So time of year really helps us set our frame. Um, I always ask about insect bites or tick bites. I ask about pets at home, both because animals can carry infection, but also they can carry ticks and other insects that can come into the home. Always ask about travel history. And this is super important because different infections live in different places in the world. So understanding where the patient has been and over what time course can be really useful in thinking about what infections they may have been exposed to. Important to ask about sick contacts, any recent hospital admissions because they can be exposed to drug-resistant organisms in healthcare settings. Always have to ask about sexual activity, considering that um, you know sexually transmitted infections can present with fever as an isolated symptom. And then you know really germane to the work that I do, I take a deep substance use history. For people who inject drugs in particular, there are a lot of different infections that come along with that behavior. And, you know, one thing that pops out, which we might talk about more, this person does have a history of opioid use disorder. He is in remission. But if there's been a relapse, that would totally change the way I'm thinking about what his risk factors are. That's so helpful. And just since it's an area of emphasis for you, could you just give uh, sort of our audience a few of the specific questions that you would ask someone who did have active uh, IV drug use to sort of help delineate infectious risk there? Yeah, well, first of all, I think it's important to note that this is a sensitive part of the history and using sort of important patient-centered language will help establish rapport and allow patients to feel comfortable in sharing information. For people who are open and comfortable talking about their drug use, I like to ask about what their habits are, pretty open-ended. What I want to know is, are they using needles? Are they injecting? How often are they injecting? Are they sharing needles? Are they sharing works? So some of the other supplies that they use to inject drugs. I think it's really important. Some people say, yeah, I use a, a clean needle, but if they're using the cotton or the water from someone that they're sharing drugs with, that's also a risk for transmitting infection. And, you know, I do ask about what drugs they're using and what their engagement in substance use treatment has been in the past, just thinking about prevention of future infections. But when we're thinking about risk, it's really sort of what's your pattern of use, what's your method of use, and what sort of supplies are you using? Thanks so much for sharing. You know, I found through sort of the example of clinicians like yourself that when you do ask about these sort of more sensitive topics in a way that's very non-judgmental and just, you know, showing that you really care about them and want to do your best to help them and help prevent problems in the future, it goes a really long way. Um, so thanks for sharing that wisdom with us. So well, just to add on before we move on, and this may be sort please. of going into a rabbit hole here, but that's okay. I just want to re-emphasize that point. It's really useful in order to do our work up for fever for understanding what the risks are. But, you know, taking a holistic view, these are the sorts of questions that will allow us to help patients prevent infection in the future, even if they're actively using, there are ways to reduce the risk of infection. So such an important point to emphasize. Thanks so much. And I really appreciate you sharing that. So for our case of Mr. F, he does not have any pets, sick contacts, or history of recent travel. While he does not remember any particular recent insect bites, he has been doing landscaping work on Cape Cod, Massachusetts in July, and in recent months, he has been monogamous with his female partner, but he has had three other sexual partners over the last year and uses protection inconsistently. He confirms that he has never used injection drugs and continues to abstain from opioids, which he previously used intranasally. 
Otherwise, social history and family history are relatively unremarkable. Now that we're starting to characterize this patient as a host, we've considered potential exposures. Can you just share how you attempt to define the syndrome itself? Sure. So yeah, this this case is sort of coming into sharper focus now, right? So it's in July. We're worried about maybe insect bites or tick bites in Massachusetts, so in the Northeast. And now he's had a few sexual exposures in the past year that raise our concern about sexually transmitted infections as well. So now we come down to what is the patient presenting with? And, you know, I think that the most important thing just to start out with is understanding the chronicity of illness. Is this someone who's had a fever for one day and he's presenting with an isolated fever? Or is this someone who's had a fever over the course of a week or two? The chronicity of an illness can be really useful in understanding or thinking about what pathogens can cause that pattern. And then, of course, we're going to ask about associated symptoms. Some people just have fever and feel crummy and that's it. But focal symptoms can be so useful in guiding our workup. So what are we thinking about here? Is there any shortness of breath or cough? Now we're thinking about a respiratory infection. Sort of walk down the body. Is there any nausea, vomiting, diarrhea? Thinking about a gastrointestinal infection. Thinking about any dysuria, urinary frequency. We're thinking about a urinary infection. Any skin rash or pain. We're thinking about a cellulitis or a musculoskeletal infection. So really sort of the symptoms outside of the fever can guide where we're going to spend our attention when we do additional workup. And then... With that workup, so hopefully the workup is going to be focused, getting labs, microbiology, radiology based on what the syndrome looks like, but that really flushes things out. We start to get a bigger picture once we get a little bit more data. Excellent. So at this point, the case is starting to come into focus and we've sort of started to think with that third aspect of the framework, how can we define this syndrome? And, you know, we get a little more information from him, the history always being so key. So he describes the symptoms of it as having started gradually. He just felt more tired than usual while he was working as a landscaper. Then he started having the fever and night sweats he noticed and maybe some chills and a mild headache. At this point, our problem representation could be something like a 42-year-old man with diabetes presenting with a subacute progressive course of intermittent fever and fatigue with some associated constitutional symptoms. You know, our listeners are probably already starting to think themselves how this may match up with a particular illness script that they have in the back of their mind. And so given what we know about this case, what would you kind of include in that initial focus diagnostic workup, Dr. Solomon? Yeah. So um, as I sort of hinted to already, we have an otherwise pretty healthy guy having a fever with constitutional symptoms, but nothing focal in the summer working landscaping on the Cape. And so I'm thinking that this could be a tick-borne disease. I would start off with some basic labs like a complete metabolic panel, some electrolyte or LFT abnormalities can give me some clues when teasing apart different tick-borne diseases, as well as a CBC with a manual differential. Thinking about specific tick-borne diseases now because of his exposures, this is where I dig a little bit more focused. I do a Lyme antibody with a reflex to Western blot. I would do an anaplasma PCR because we're in New England, and I would think about a test for Babesia. That would be a blood smear or a Babesia PCR. So that's sort of the tick-borne panel. I'm also thinking about sexually transmitted diseases here, especially HIV can present with fever and constitutional symptoms. With the history, an HIV antibody antigen screening test should be enough, but if there's any concern that he might have had a recent sexual partner, a viral load would be important to pick up acute HIV as well. And then I would, you know, send the usual gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis as well. And then anyone coming in with fever, I always get two sets of blood cultures. 
Once people get started on any treatment, the sensitivity of blood cultures will go down. So I always use blood cultures as a first step in an evaluation for infection or for fever. Um, you know, thinking about things like subacute bacterial endocarditis, those are sometimes hard diagnoses to make, and we want to make sure that we make them as early as possible. Great. While sometimes cases do evolve as we expect, and this one seems to be, there are often aspects of cases, particularly cases we're seeing in the hospital, that don't seem to add up. So specifically, you know, what do you make sure that you're thinking about in cases where all the data doesn't seem to line up with the patient as a host, the risk factors, the exposures, and the syndrome itself? Yeah, I think this is such an important um, part of what we do in clinical reasoning. Oftentimes when we're doing a teaching conference, we're presenting a snapshot in time, but in real life, we watch patients evolve over time. And I always tell my students, but also my patients, that time is data. And watching symptoms evolve and getting more data can actually be really useful in changing the way that we think. Um, I'll give you a good example that I saw in clinical practice. So it was April 2020, a patient came in with fever, um, and, you know, it was April of 2020, so we said, this is COVID, right? And he came in and he had a negative COVID test, but we said, yeah, even still, it's probably still COVID. And uh, it took actually a little while, um, about two weeks of repeat sort of medical visits. He even came to the emergency room once until someone asked a history about tick bites. And it turned out that he was a gentleman who had anaplasma. And so, you know, we always sort of have to think about, okay, this is COVID, this is COVID, but what doesn't fit? He actually never had respiratory symptoms. And the symptoms were not evolving the way we thought it should with COVID, right? So he should have been getting worse and then getting better. And that wasn't happening. So with time, it turned out that we had new data. He was getting worse. He started to develop a non-blanching rash on his chest. And we said, what are we missing here? And we had to go back to the drawing board and say, let's start fresh and do that process over again. I always think about this as, as an iterative process. We do our initial clinical reasoning, then we get more data, and then we go back to the drawing board and say, let's do that again. Thanks for walking through this case. Uh, we can imagine a number of different directions it could have taken, but of course, you're an infectious disease doctor in New England, and this case is typical for an endemic infection in that area. Ultimately, his lab showed a mild anemia, thrombocytopenia, and elevated aminotransferases, and he was diagnosed with babesiosis when the thin smear showed babesia organisms. He was successfully treated with atovaquone and azithromycin. So, Dr. Solomon, we always end our episodes with the experts discussant, sort of going through a few pearls that you want to make sure our listeners take away from this episode. Any pearls that you want to make sure our learners walk away with? One thing I just want to emphasize that this is my pattern. This is the way that I structure my thinking. It doesn't have to be yours. But having a structured approach to each patient can really allow you to uh, make sure that you're not missing things um, as you are um, approaching a patient with an undiagnosed syndrome. So that's number one. Number two, really consider the host and the immune status of the host. I think that's so key in understanding what people are at risk for and what infections should be on our differential diagnosis. Number three, I would say, you know, always be humble and think about what doesn't fit with our working diagnosis. Oftentimes we're so anchored to what seems to make the most sense that we ignore the things that don't fit. I welcome in the things that don't fit to make me readdress sort of what am I missing here. And remember that infections are not mutually exclusive. So just because this guy had Babesia doesn't mean he didn't also have Lyme. 
And then the last thing is just, uh, you know, communicating uncertainty with patients, I think, can be really useful in helping them understand the process that we're going through in thinking really deeply about trying to figure out what's going on. That's a great note to end on. So thank you so much for joining us on Run the List and helping us learn how to think through an undifferentiated fever. You know, while infectious disease doctors will always sort of take the best histories, write great notes, uncover possible diagnoses other teams may not have considered, and that that mystique will always stay there. We really appreciate you imparting some of that wisdom. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Run the List.